I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Real Estate for Life. If you're thinking about buying or selling a home or moving to a more family-friendly or Christian area, please consider going to realestateforlife.org. They will pair you with expert real estate professionals who share your faith, and they will also contribute a portion of their commission to a pro-life charity of your choice, all at no cost to you. So to connect with a pro-life realtor, please visit realestateforlife.org or call them at 1-877-LIFE-US-1. Hello and welcome back to A Reason for Hope. I'm Mario Costabile and I am honored that you're listening to us today. We have really grown over the past four years and in part, it's because of your ideas. If you want to send us any of your ideas or thoughts about content for this podcast, you can email us at podcast at arrayofhope.net. Make sure that you subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast app so we can walk together on this journey of faith. Please prayerfully consider going to our donation page and help us with this work. Our partnership with you will allow us to continue to create these podcasts. Just go to our website at arrayofhope.org. Our guest today is Dr. Carrie Gress. And Dr. David Heideck will be interviewing her. You guys are in store for an amazing discussion. Carrie Gress is a fellow at the Washington, D.C.-based think tank, Ethics of Public Policy Center, and a scholar at the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. She has her doctorate in philosophy from the Catholic University of America and is an editor at the online women's magazine, Theology of Home. Carrie's work has appeared in numerous publications, including The Catholic Vote, The Catholic World Report, National Review, Daily Caller, Daily Wire, Newsweek, Real Clear Politics, The Catholic Thing, The National Catholic Register, and The Washington Examiner, just to name a few. She is a frequent radio and podcast guest that has appeared on Fox, the BBC, CBC, EWTN, and the Russian Times Television. Carrie has lived and worked professionally in Washington, D.C. and Rome, Italy, and her work has been translated into nine languages. She has authored many books, including Nudging Conversations, Ultimate Makeover, The Marian Option, Marian Consecration for Children, Theology of Home, and many more. Please welcome Kerry Gress and Dr. David Haida. So, Dr. Kerry Gress, welcome back to A Reason for Hope. It's so great to have you again. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be back. For the sake of the audience, the viewers who haven't gotten a chance to know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, so I am a mother of five. I homeschool two of my five children, and the others, one's too young to go to school, and the others are in school. But um, I have a doctorate in philosophy from the Catholic University of America, and I have just published my 10th book, The End of Woman. And uh, you know, I still marvel that I've written all these books about women because I—, I said very definitively when I was in graduate school that I would never work on women's issues. So um, here we are with, uh, I think, maybe about four or five of my books have been about or for women, maybe more than that, actually. But uh, in any event, I'm uh, married and live in Virginia, and um, it's just been kind of a wild ride, um, you know, going from working on my doctorate uh 
when I had children and, um, you know, realizing after finishing that, that I could probably write books to really see where things have gone. That's wonderful. Might I ask why you had said so definitively that you would not write about women's issues? <laughs> you know, I think um, I think I just didn't like the language. I didn't I didn't like the way that it seemed like so much of it was incredibly inaccessible to the average woman. I, you know, I had a conversion when I was in college, and I was always looking for ways to to help my own friends. And it, it just seemed like the you know I would read these books that I thought were amazing, but they were certainly not the kinds of things that I could pass on to women without any kind of philosophical um, preparation. And so I think that I just didn't want to end up sort of in what felt like a real cul-de-sac where I couldn't get out and get ideas to the average woman and help the average woman really understand truth and, you know, all the things that are awaiting women that we're, we're not communicating to women in the, in the current culture. Um, so that was the, the main reason why. Totally get that. <laughs> and it is something that the language can be a barrier really often yeah. for people. So yeah, that's a, no, that's it's a incredible insight. how much of a barrier it is. And, you know, that I, I think this is one of the things that I've really been very focused on in my own writing is how do you make this accessible? How do you make it relevant? How do you make it a page turner so that people don't feel like, uh, you know, you get a couple of pages in and you're like, I have no idea what I just read, you know? So I, <laughs> that, that's been the real goal too. Because I think we've all read books like that and or tried to read books like that and you don't get very far. And so these are really important ideas and, you know, I'm trying to put make them as accessible as possible is, I, I think, hugely important for the culture today. Wonderful. You know, I've been an admirer. Uh, I really loved your book, The Anti-Mary Exposed, Rescu Rescuing the Culture from Toxic Femininity. What a great subtitle, by the way. And, uh, <laughs> and in, in many ways, this one has a great subtitle too, The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. Yeah. This is fantastic. And oh, by the way, you got to love the Picasso woman. Isn't on the great? Cover. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. The um, publisher did an amazing job with the cover. It's great. Um, so I, I love that first book, The Anti-Mary mm -hmm. Exposed. And, and it seems to me when I read this book that it was a compliment to and really expanding the ideas that, yeah. that you'd really kind of delved into there, but maybe more in the area of philosophy rather than the spiritual underpinnings of the mm -hmm. issues. So mm -hmm. can you speak to that? Why did you yeah, write this no, book? absolutely. I mean, the, the Anti-Mary Exposed, uh, you know, it's been one of those books that I, it's it's gone into translation and maybe four or five different languages. And uh, in fact, just today I got a request for it to be put in, um, translated into to one of the Indian languages. Um, but I think that- um, well, thank you. Um, but I think that uh, one of the things that really struck me about it was it was very, the, the audience, you know, for as wide as it was, it was actually pretty narrow because it couldn't, Protestants couldn't, it wasn't really a very Protestant friendly book without, mm. you know, Mary's name in it and a lot of, um, you know, so much, so focused on Our Lady. Uh, but it also, you know, I wanted to be able to reach a secular audience too and be able to have kind of a, a book that I could give to pretty much anybody and they weren't going to just turn their nose up on it. At, at it because it, it spoke to them in a certain way or or maybe they were intrigued by it um but yeah that was that the 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 anti-mary so many people said you know can you write a book that I, we can we can give to just about anybody that you know that was the feedback that i was giving so that was in the back of my mind um but the other piece was i i knew i hadn't looked at first wave feminism and i just kept hearing you know which was really second wave really hijacked it this is really where things went bad the first wave was really good and i just thought okay well i'm just gonna go look myself 
see what's back there. You know, I'll take a day or two, kind of just dive into some some of these, you know, the platitudes and nice things about women and just kind of close the book on it. But I had to look at it myself because I knew with my philosophical training that I would probably see things a little bit differently than most people would. Um, and I was shocked at what what I found. I mean, this was, I mean, this is the, really, I think the, the original insights in much of the book is just to s- start digging into Really, what happened in the first wave, and why the first wave was no, you know, great thing. This was not. Well, this, this is an incredible drastic. thing that you're you're touching upon because, mm-hmm. and we'll get into some of those ideas in the course right. of the interview. But, um, you know, even really solid people, um, mm-hmm. Catholics, philosophers, uh, theologians that that really have the right, let's say, position on all these issues, and really mm-hmm. have the sense of how things have gone wrong have bought the narrative that the first wave was great, the suffragettes, you know, two mm-hmm. thumbs up, and then somehow with these with the uh, second wave and the merging of feminism with the sexual revolution, that mm-hmm. things went terribly awry. And your yeah. book is really, I would say, uh, novel in the idea that you're exposing that that's not really the truth of the matter. That's not the whole truth. Yeah. No, I think that's that's exactly right. I think that my research just really blows that out of the water. And we realize, like, no, the problems are much earlier than that. Um, and even the sexual revolution, you know, this wasn't an accident. This was very much planned out. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that um, it, it was just fascinating. I mean, I, I doing the research was just amazing. Like, I just couldn't believe what I was finding and why no one's talked about this and putting all these pieces together and really drawing from either original sources or from people who are very pro-feminist um, or pro, you know, the, I wasn't pulling from critics of the people that I was researching. I was pulling from people that were very much supporters of, um, you know, people like Mary Wollstonecraft or, you um, uh, Percy Shelley or Elizabeth Cady Stanton. So it was really interesting to see, you know, people who didn't weren't intentionally being guarded. Even that, when you start piecing things together, you can really see that there's a lot of, um, of problems there. Well, let's dig into that a little bit, if you're yeah. okay with that. So sure. uh, let's talk about Mary Wollstonecraft. I mean, she's really considered the mother of feminism, right? And, mm. uh, and yet her ideas really were inspired by Enlightenment thinkers and um, the same underlying philosophy of the French Revolution. Can you just touch on that a little bit and how that? Yeah. No, I, I think this is a great question. A lot of times, you know, I read Mary Wollstonecraft when I was in college with so many people, and you know, people remember very little about her. But there is this sort of sense that she she stuck, kicked off the the women's movement, and it, you know, it's really interesting to look at her within context because, of course, you know, she did do that to a certain degree, but she also prior to all of that. What she really was doing was focused on this, the ideas of the French Revolution. Um, you know, there's this debate going on that she kind of interjects herself into between Edmund Burke, who is an Englishman who's looking at what's happening in the French Revolution and just thinks this this is a disaster. You know, this is a bloodbath. This is people are trying to take down all of these elements of society without realizing how much these elements of society, how important they are, whether it's, um, you know, certainly the church is one example, looking at um, healthcare and orphanages and, you know, all the things that the, the church is doing at that stage. And they're just utterly destroying it, um, both 
structurally, but also just physically. They're, you know, lopping off heads of priests and nuns and doing all these awful, egregious things. And so he's commenting on that. And Thomas Paine, who had been a friend of his, um, you know, uh, jumped from the the American Revolution to the the French Revolution and just kept getting more and more radical in his ideas. And he writes this pamphlet called um, The Rights of Men. And so Wollstonecraft is jumping into the the debate against Burke because she writes this, first writes a book called The Vindication of the Rights of Man. And then she writes a second one called The Vindication of the Rights of Woman. And that's the, 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 the second one about women is the one that is really focused on this kind of idea of the women's, what w- later we would be called the women's revolution or what we know to be feminism. So she's coming from this place where she really wants to see any kind of hierarchy destroyed, whether it's the church, certainly the, any kind of monarchy. But she's also very down on things like military. So anything that really embodies a lot of these gifts that men have anything that sort of smacks of patriarchy, which, of course, that term didn't become a negative one until later. Um, that's what she's really focused on. And um, th- so that that was kind of her major contribution, was this idea of collapsing society down into this egalitarian, you know, where me- men and women are sort of interchangeable. Um, now, she's also coming from this place where she's seeing that women have very tough lives, and she herself had a tough life. She had you know, horrible parents. And um, those are not incidental to to her worldview, I think, and, you know, along with most of these women. Um, so she's trying to answer the question, how do we help women? And so that was, a, I, I think, a big one. But the problem is she's answering it in a way that I think, you know, is more, how do we help women become like men um, instead of how do we help women as women? Um, so it's these kind of fundamental things that she sort of starts with. And then the movement really moves on from there. But that's, those are kind of her, the foundational blocks. And you know, I would add, not everything about her was terrible. Um, I think she did have some some lovely ideas and concepts, but I think that the foundation I, foundational ideas and just coming from this very egalitarian worldview was not, you know, an ideal one. And that's really how things got set off on the wrong on the wrong foot. And like you say, the plight of women at that time was real, and there needed yeah. to be a response to it. The question is, was mm-hmm. it the right response? Right. So exactly. Uh, and yeah. and then she marries. Interestingly, because neither one of them really believed in marriage, I think you right. mentioned that that uh, they got married pretty much because Mary Wollstonecraft had had a child out of wedlock prior and had seen how difficult it was for a, a, having a child out of wedlock to be able to manage in society at the time. So, so her and William Godwin get mm-hmm. married, and um, now now. Talk about him because now this really draws another right. whole set of ideas into the mix, right? For so, sure. yeah. So William Godwin is not well known today, but he was the one of the first anarchists and also hugely opposed to the idea of marriage. He thought it was marriage and the family was just kind of a, a type of slavery, and it was very outspoken about it. And so this, you know, is a very dynamic relationship between the, the two of them, and, the, and it is fascinating that they did marry. But yeah, it was absolutely because she already had this child, and she saw actually how it was actually hard on the, the child. That was really her, her big concern. Um, so yeah, they get married, and they have Mary Godwin, who becomes Mary Godwin Shelley, that whom we know now to be the author of Frankenstein. So uh, there's all kinds of things going on and happening. And but both of them in their own rights are kind of um, you know, contemporary celebrities. I know Godwin ended up hosting Aaron Burr after Hamilton was shot. And um, you know, he's we've got has people flocking to him from all over, which is how Percy Shelley, who became 
his future son-in-law um, enters into the picture. And he's obviously an English poet that, um, you know, has his own hand in the movement as well. Right. I, I'm, I'm going to come back to to Shelley and mm-hmm. um, and Mary and Jane. Yeah. So I'm going to come back to them. Not but, just Oprah. Yeah. Right. But uh, but uh, this one idea like really stood out to me, and it's fascinating because on the on the surface of it, you would say, well, no, this is not a bad thing, and yet nevertheless, uh, when when you kind of play it out, you realize, well, this actually did separate the idea of woman from being a human being that in other words that that you, we there are no like non-male or female human beings right and so like you're you're a human being as a man or as a woman and yet she tried to focus on on not being a woman but rather on a woman being a human being mm-hmm. so i mean on the surface you could say well yeah human beings have rights women therefore share the rights of every human being but it kind of went further than that and so maybe you can you know touch upon that yeah. idea no i'd be happy to extrapolate on that um it, you know it's fascinating to see because of course if she i think she was trying to use it in a way of making a distinction between sl- a slave or an animal or something um it, you know, seems important enough at that stage. But what right. happens is this very curious, interesting cycle where it gets picked up over and over and again. This a woman is a human being. And, it, you know, if you've anyone spent any time looking at 70s bumper stickers or 70s, you know, the, the woman's movement is just full of all of these sound bites. And that that's one of them. You know, uh, feminism is the radical idea that a woman is a human being. Um, it all goes back to this this original concept that that Wallstonecraft outlines is this idea of a woman as a human. Um, but what it does is it creates the secondary layer. Like you said, we're all made male or female. But suddenly, if you've got this sort of overarching concept of humanity, then it's much easier to break off male and female and interject, you know, what we're seeing now, this kind of gender fluidity or what have what have you, because it, the concept is human. It's not um, male or female. Those are sort of iterations of it that can then have other added on pieces to it. So it, right. it's interesting to see. And how you even she, see it today, like women's rights or human rights signs. Yeah, right? I mean, it's exactly. Like, no, and it's, and it's, it's almost it's like the biggest over. no duh on the planet. But like, you know, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. But it opens up in our minds sort of this new way of, of, of thinking about things. And when you see, you know, how the movement progresses, absolutely becomes a very important piece, um, you know, to getting us to where we're at now with the trans movement and whatnot. So anyway, yeah. that that's moving away quickly, way too quickly to, ahead of the story. Sure. No, but it's fantastic. And I, I was struck by how early on that was being mm-hmm. talked about. And, yeah. and so let's, let's, let's move on to, uh, to the daughter of William Godwin and, and uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, um, Mary, eventually Shelley, yeah. So um, this relationship with Percy Bysshe Shelley is interesting, and romanticism itself is interesting. Now, I can remember studying the romantic poets in high school and and kind of loving them, in a sense, because mm-hmm. they talked about nature. They did kind of weirdly talk about spirituality, but I had no idea at the time how anti-Christian they were, how much they were into free love, overthrowing any kind of social taboo. So maybe you can talk a little bit about romanticism here, particularly as a reaction to maybe the 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 strict rationalism of the enlightenment and then yeah. um and how that kind of advanced the movement and then even the interesting nature of the relationship between um 
Percy Bishelli and Mary and her sister and and then Lord Byron gets involved. So this is fantastic right. stuff that I don't think people ever learned in high school. So yeah, no, I know I certainly <laughs> didn't learn it. Um, so uh, Mary Wollstonecraft and William Godwin were certainly both considered romantics as well. I mean, they're 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 Enlightenment thinkers who are reacting to, um, you know, Kant's very rigorous, le- you know, logical and legal kind of uh, use of philosophy. Um, So this is a reaction against that. It's also a reaction against the church because they're trying to get rid of anything that smacks of the church or the hierarchy or, you know, incense or whatever they call it. Um, So they're trying to hearken, you know, they're getting, scuttling the Ten Commandments. So they're trying to come back and say, well, what do we, how do we ground our ideas and whatnot? Um, So this is the whole Enlightenment project really is how do we get rid of all of the smells and bells and then implement something new, which they want to be reason. Um, So you've got Kant who's very, very logical, but most people aren't going to embrace Kant's ideas and punctuality and, you know, all the things that Kant is known for. And they want something um, more. And this is, uh, again, where the romantic movement moves in, um, smashing taboos, but in a very sophisticated and attractive way with, uh, you know, all kinds of, the paintings are very picturesque and, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, storms and drama and emotions and, you know, all of these things sort of enter into the romantic way of thinking. And so all of this, you know, the whole family of Mary Wollstonecraft is is involved in this in, in various degrees. Um, So Mary Wollstonecraft actually dies shortly after Mary Godwin is born, um, 10 days after she she got an infection and, and passed away. So she's being raised by, Mary Godwin's being raised by her father. At some point, you know, uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley's been thrown out of Oxford. He's trying to figure out how to make a living. And he realizes that, you know, he's got all this money that he will inherit when his father passes away. And this is apparently a way in which young, wealthy, young nobles could make money is they get loans based on what they will inherit later on. And um, so he meets William Godwin and William Godwin, who is always scratching for money, um, sees an opportunity to get some money from Percy Shelley. So this relationship sort of is formed. But in the meantime, Shelley comes home for dinner, and he and Mary are just immediately smitten with each other. And, of course, he's married at that point to another woman who they have a child together. I think there's another one on the way. And, you know, there's there's just no stopping um, Percy Shelley. So he and Mary and the stepsister, um, Jane, who later changes her name to Claire. um, Is that right, or did I inverse that? Anyway. No, that's right. um, I think so. They, uh, they all, th- all three of them run away together and um, they go to France that, you know, expecting to have this very amazing adventure. And of course, you know, it's, it's plagued by um, seasickness and running out of money and, uh, you know, all kinds of awful things. And finally, they have to leave um, France because they don't have any more money and they go back to, to England. And, you know, of course, all the while, there's all this intimation of the, 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 the menage of the, the three of these um, people because... Jane stays in the, um, Claire, Claire Jane, Jane Claire stays in the picture <laughs> for a much longer time um, than, you know, she wasn't just supervising. She um, she was very much involved in the, the family, um, if you can call it that. And eventually, Percy Shelley leaves his first wife, and um, then the wife commits suicide. So then he's free to marry um, Mary Godwin, and they get married, and... Um, you know, several children, so many children are involved in this between the ones that they, that were born and died. Um, but there's also several that are just all over the place that are Percy Shelley's children, um, sort of sc- 
strewn across, strewn across the continent, <laughs> or at least France and Italy and um, and in England. Um, but yeah, they they moved to Italy in different stages because he can't. He has his reputation is so tarnished in England. He can, they can't really stay there, and um, that's where they meet Lord Byron. And Lord Byron gets involved, and of course, Lord, Lord Byron is also a cad. Um, he ends up having an affair with Claire Jane, and um, they have a baby together. And of course, that child ends up dying later on. And, you know, it's just it's it's incredibly sad to read these stories because there's just the women are, you know, abused so much. And they, they I think um, Claire more so than than Mary um, Shelley comes to the realization of just how awful the, the, this romantic vision is, especially for women. Um, later in life, I think she's the one that has the realization of just the, the tragedy of all of it. And Mary Godwin sees some of it, but she was still so devoted to Percy Shelley that I think it, it doesn't come out as clearly as it does in Claire's work. Um, so yeah, it's just this, it's a hot mess. And, um, you know, it wasn't until after Shelley dies, he died at 29. Um, you know, this was someone that thought that nothing could stop him and he ends up dying in a, a boating accident. And, um, it, you know, that's finally that the elements got to him. But um, it, yeah, his his reputation was not recovered. He didn't become really a famous poet that had a lot of credibility until ap- certainly well after his death, because it, it, people knew how just how awful he was. Now, their writing even reflected some of these ideas that they were dealing with, not only Mary Shelley and Frankenstein, but uh, but Percy Bysshe Shelley and in the things that he was writing, I, yeah. I think you had mentioned that there's a character in one of his one of his books that becomes almost like the icon of like yeah. the contemporary woman, right? So mm-hmm. can you say a few words about that? Yeah. So while Mary Shelley's writing about Frankenstein and the, the creature, um, he is writing about this woman named Sithna, and of course he's fascinated by his mother-in-law's work and he's fascinated by his father-in-law's work. So he's sort of puts them together, actually. Um, this idea of, you know, how do we collapse the culture and how, how do we have this women's revolution? That's what he called it. Um, so he creates this woman named Sithna who becomes the first independent woman. She doesn't have a husband. She has no children. And she's the one that becomes really this model um, for the, the movement that so many people were just fascinated by because they had never imagined a woman in such a state. And suddenly it looks incredibly attractive um, to them. And so that's really what, what was his contribution. He takes these three ideas of, you know, Shelley, Mary, I'm sorry, got, sorry, Wollstonecraft's idea of collapsing culture. Um, So what would become smashing the patriarchy? He takes Godwin's idea of free love, adds that to it. And then um, he adds the occult to it also, um, because he was very interested and fascinated by the occult as well. Um, So all of those things is, you know, kind of the thread of the argument of the book is those are the three pieces that it really came to characterize what we know to be feminism for the last 200 years. And so like now here's the the blockbuster idea, you know, mm-hmm. from here we move on to the um the likes of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B Anthony and company. So, <laughs> um, you know, and yet the the view of them of course in everybody's mind is that this is this is they're really noble, like the whole mm-hmm. movement is very noble. Um, but when you look at the context of their ideas and even look at some of their ideas and some of their actions, 
uh, you're, you're kind of shocked to find out, no, this is really just a continuation of what had come before and yeah. almost like a bridge to what winds up becoming second wave feminism. So mm -hmm. maybe you can share some thoughts on that. Yeah, so uh, absolutely. I think that they, you know, between the two of them, um, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and of course, Betty Friend Ann, whom we'll talk about later, I was just shocked because there's so much polish put on these women in terms of who they were and that what they were interested in, what they were involved in. And they really are, are made to look like just incredible heroines. Um, but most people don't really realize that actually the, 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 the women's movement that Elizabeth Cady Stanton founded. Actually, she got kicked out of um, because she got involved in so many scandalous things. Um, and I can certainly go back and enumerate some of them. But most people have no idea that, you know, the feminist movement, I mean, sorry, the suffrage movement really ended at that stage. And suffrage, you know, it took another 30 years to um, 20 or 30 years to get anywhere because she had created such a disaster because of all the scandals that she was involved in, all the things that she was promoting. And, you know, it was just created this huge mess. Um, but Elizabeth Cady Stanton herself was very much, you know, the big thing that was happening at this time was this second great awakening in the, in America. And you had all of these people involved with mediums and doing seances and, you know, all kinds of occult activity happening. She or herself that the table that she came up with the idea for the Seneca Falls Convention. Um, she's sitting at this table that's now in the Smithsonian called the Spirit Table. Well, at that stage in New York, you had all these spirits that would be rapping on tables, sort of giving their message through knocks um, out to the women that would, would sit at these tables and have these seances. Um, so she's very in, involved in that. She's also became very anti-Christian. She wrote this book called the, the Women's Bible, which, you know, it's just phenomenal because it's so juvenile in its argumentation um she's she's also involved in this you know this idea of rewriting um genesis so that it, you know adam and eve don't really fall but eve actually just comes into her own um kind of you know opportunity and suddenly she has this wisdom that the serpent gives her and so it's just it's just a hot mess and you know i i focused on elizabeth katie stanton because susan b anthony in many respects was just kind of her mouthpiece all the ideas came from Katie Stanton, but she was home with her children, so she didn't have the capacity to go on the road and to promote these things. So much of it comes from the mouth of Susan B. Anthony. And, um, you know, we don't have a lot on her anymore. One of her biographers spent four days burning papers and letters and, you know, anything related that they could, wow. she could find. So we also know that there's probably a lot that was in those that, you know, why, why would a biographer do that? Yeah. I mean, if you think of a biographer. it's not favorable to the narrative. That's why. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that's, that's what happened. So anyway, ultimately they, they, um, they, there's this funny situation that happens. It's 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 very complicated, and I won't go into all the details. But basically, they are frustrated because they're not as popular as the other women's suffrage movement that sort of. Yeah, talk about this because this is really interesting. It seems that there's this divide within the women's movement between those who want to attach themselves to the abolitionist movement and those like Katie Stanton and Susan B. Anthony who. The thought of a black man having voting rights before white women was preposterous. So, yeah, no. talk about this. Well, I think, you know, the initially it was the, the attachment was the abolitionist movement, but it was the, the big 
hurdle that Elizabeth Cady Stanton couldn't get her mind wrapped around around. And this was after this the Civil War. So um, the, the abolition movement had kind of dissolved a little bit because of what happened in that war. Um, but Cady Stanton hated the idea of a black man being able to vote before her or an Italian or an Asian or you know anyone who was a minority man, male. So that was the first splinter in the movement was those that stuck with Katie Stanton and then um, those who broke branched off and were involved in their own movement that was that very much embraced um, minorities having the capacity to vote, vote as long as they were male. Um, so that that was the first divide. So these two groups are rivaling each other for attention. And, you know, all the press is sort of focused on the other group. And um Katie Sand gets mad and she's like, well, we've got to find some way to draw some attention to ourselves. So she picks this woman who's been called by the press, um, Mrs. Satan, and she, her name is Victoria Woodhull. She actually was the first woman to run for president in the United States. Um, but she's been a medium. She's been a prostitute. She's been, you know, you name it. Her dad was this awful, 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 um, you know, snake oil salesman who was probably wanted in like five states. And they kept having to move because he would get into all these problems and um finally she she meets i think it's one of the rockefellers and um he has her talk to the meat the he uses her as a medium um to help figure out what stocks he should be investing in and of <laughs> course the the spirits are favorable and he makes all this money so he sets her up with her own brokerage firm actually so she is the first female that had a brokerage firm in new york city um so they think let's have victoria woodhull speak to our our group that way you know nobody can ignore the power and you know prestige of victoria woodhull so she shows up and she ends up talking about free love and how important free love is to the movement and um you know of course everybody is scandalized and it creates a huge scandal and ends up um, uncovering another scandal. And anyway, th that was the real reason why Katie Stanton was sort of ushered out of the building, if you will, um, from the suffrage movement that she started, because there was just there was just too deep and there were just too many things that they just couldn't have her on anymore. As, as now, part just of a little aside, this is something that's interesting to me, because you mentioned the occult with Percy Bysshe Shelley. You mentioned yeah. the occult with Elizabeth Katie Stanton and mm -hmm. the spirit table. And right. And yet I'm always surprised by the fact that the the people that I know and even the people at higher levels that are most deeply entrenched in uh, radical feminism or the mm -hmm. LGBTQ movement are all somehow tapped into the occult in some way. So many of them. So and this maybe is a tie in with the anti-Mary yeah. exposed. But right. I mean, that was that something you found in your research that there's this strange, I mean, even later on, you talk about how witches become very popular mm -hmm. with second wave mm -hmm. feminism. So I don't know, yeah. you want to speak to no, that? I think, I, you know, I think it's absolutely one of the three you know, legs of the stool of, of radical feminism is the occult. I don't talk about it that much in this book because I didn't want it to, uh, you know, freak Distract. people out and have them. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like it can get really distracting. And there's so much information on it too, that it's sort of almost, you just kind of feel like you're, you're digging deep into something that's very, um, intangible and just hard to substantiate other than what, what's really 
written down. And so that's kind of what I was just trying to focus on was to show that it had a presence. It definitely had an influence. Um, and it just keeps coming back around, you know, over and over again. It kind of goes underground a little bit with, with communism because they were so focused on atheism. Um, but then it just comes right back up back in the, the 1960s and, and 70s and is incredibly, um, active and virulent and, you know, part, very much part of the second wave movement. Um, but yeah, there, there was a book that I, I, I did a lot of research with that was called Satanic Feminism. And I don't know how far I would have gotten without this book because it was just, um, it's published by Oxford University Press. It's by a Swedish man. This was his dissertation. And it was basically this whole period, even before Wallstonecraft and then certainly well after, but just talking about the role of of the satanic in in the movement and, um, you know, related to women's issues entirely. So that obviously wasn't, you know, the entirety of my research, but it was really amazing to to pick up um, some of these pieces that I never would have put together that were based on this really deep research from the Swedish fellow um, or scholar. Um, but yeah, it's absolutely a, a, a piece that's a part of it. And, you, you know, it, it kind of makes sense when you have women. I mean, women are vulnerable. Women bodily, we are not as strong. When you have a baby, you're incredibly vulnerable. Um, it, you know, this is the beauty of the family. This is what balances it out. This is why, you know, how it works well so that a woman opens herself up to that kind of vulnerability that comes with pregnancy. Um, but you can see how when things go awry, the women feel like they have to have get power from somewhere else or from something. And sadly, you know, most of these women are broken and most of the, them are exposed to these kind of awful things. And so witchcraft and, and the dark arts are kind of a natural direction in which to go to feel like they have some sort of power. And of course, you know, the demons are smart. They know how to just play them so that they get them to this point where they're so deep that they've given up their own soul and will and mind and, you know, all of those pieces. But um, yeah, it's just- And they're trapped and can't break free at that point, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So if you're wondering how you can help this ministry, rating and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help others hear it, as well as sharing it with your friends and your family. So join us in this mission by rating, reviewing, or sharing this episode with someone you think needs to hear it. And we want to thank you for your continued support of A Reason for Hope podcast. We are all called to be good stewards, whether that means making wise financial decisions for our families, for our parishes, or for organizations that we may advise or direct. Owning gold and silver is easy, and we're happy to be partnered with St. Joseph's, who has exclusively focused on helping families protect their wealth in gold and silver for over a decade. Their pricing is very competitive, and their dedicated retirement team was recognized last year as only one of two dealers in the nation who meet the stringent criteria of integrity, value, and dependability by an independent trust company. Take the steps today to protect your family from potential financial stress and allocate some of your hard-earned dollars to gold and silver as good stewards. Go to www.stjosephpartners.com forward slash array of hope to learn how you can protect your loved ones at this important moment in history. Again, that is www.stjosephpartners.com forward slash array of hope. Well, you know, then then we get to second wave here. So let's talk about Betty Friedan and her very influential mm-hmm. book, The Feminine Mystique. I mean, like mm-hmm. probably anybody who's studied anything about uh, the women's movement has heard about her mm-hmm. and this book. Um, yet it seems that this is where you get 
um, Marxist ideas kind of mm-hmm. blending into the, the feminist movement. Yeah. And um, of course, Marx and Engels um, had the view that um, the family was actually a major source of a problem with regards to society. Of course, they envisioned this in terms of capital and the economy, but but even more than that, it, it becomes now blended with the feminist movement, a source of men's oppression as the bourgeoisie over the woman who's the proletariat. Mm-hmm. So like, so yeah. maybe you can talk a little bit about Friedan and her yeah. um, views here and how that Marxist ideology gets kind of mm-hmm. brought into play. Co-opted. Um, yeah, it's really genius move actually, because what had happened previously was you've got all this Marxist language talking about the, you know, f- focused on class warfare. How do we get the classes to want to fight one another? Um, and so you, you've you got, um, you know, these different in- influential communists who later on realize, like, what if we just make men the oppressors and women are the victims? What if we take these concept of class warfare and apply it to the sexes? Um, and that's really just the, the genius move that that happened which is you know where so much of our our drama has come from um related to the sexes and all the resentment and envy and whatnot uh but so Friedan was very much an, involved in communism there's a, a great book that i did a lot of research with uh, by a man named daniel horowitz i think it's called the 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 making of betty Friedan and the feminine mystique or something long like that but um i can't remember exactly the title off the top of my head but um in this book, he's he was actually a friend of Ferdinand's, and he had noticed at some point she was teaching at USC, and he had noticed that she's using these Saul Alinsky tactics, um, you know, these very aggressive new left atta- tactics. And he's like, but this is, she's just a housewife. How would she know how to use these ideas, especially in this setting? Um, he started paying more, much more attention to her biography and just details about her life. And finally, you know, he was just convinced that she had all this communist background. And he told her, I want to write a book on you about your communist influence. And um, she said, absolutely not. I will not give you any of my private papers. Um, And his argument was, you know, isn't it amazing that here's this woman after McCarthyism who can still get her communist ideas out there? That Hmm. that was really his thesis, what drove him, because he was just fascinated by the fact that she was still effectively using communism, despite the the culture and the climate against communism because of McCarthyism. Um, So she, she said, absolutely not. And so he just was so convinced of it, he used a lot of open source, you know, as many many open source materials that he could find and pieces together is this really remarkable picture of her. Um, but I, I think that she, you know, over and over again, you see her involvement in communism and even in the women's issue back in, I think, as early as the 40s. Um, 30s and 40s. And, you know, she, all the while she's saying, oh, I was just a housewife. I wasn't really interested in this until the 50s and kind of playing herself off as, you know, very innocently. Um, meanwhile, what, you know, if you read the fe- the feminine mystique, it's loaded with Marxist ideas. And, you know, there was one of them I was actually able to source back to um, this organization called the Congress for America Women, which was very much a, a Soviet propaganda machine. Um, it was set up by this woman named Bella Dodd, who people might recognize her name, Paul Kangor, and um, uh, uh, his co-author um, wrote a book called Bella Dodd and the Devil, I think, um, part of that whole and the Devil series that, that yeah. Paul Kangor has done. Because um, I think he has Marx and the Devil and, and yeah, one Yeah, they're great but, um, books. They're very great. They're fantastic. So um, Bella Dodd, of course, had a huge conversion, left the Communist Party. Fulton Sheen was very much involved in her conversion. And so she writes a lot of the details of her life as a communist down, you know, it was published later. Um, 
But one of the things she describes is how she was legally, she set up this organization, Congress for American Women, and she's explaining how, you know, the whole idea was to try and get women housewives to stop spending money, but also to sort of make them the the, the next line of, um, you know, revolutionaries that would help with the, with the, the, the communist revolution when it was time. Um, so anyway, it's really interesting to, I've, I discovered when I was just casually reading the, the feminine mystique. I think it's in chapter nine, one of her first paragraphs. It's almost word for word description of what Bella Dodd described as the the reason why they had set up Congress for American Women. And and here we've got Betty Friedan explaining, you know, we've got to stop women from using their power of purchase and, you know, really promoting sort of this um, communist agenda. But in the meantime, she's also was very much for this idea of getting women to think like Marxists by telling them that they had to get out of the home. You know, she's using this language of calling the home the, the, the comfortable concentration camp. And um, she uses all these just incredible psychological tools to make it make women feel like they're either missing out or they're victims if they're, you know, home with their children. And um, so it, it's just incredible how effective she was because she didn't just come out and say, we're communists, this is what we want. But she uses very, you know, language that I think resonated with so many women. And um, that, that that's how she was so, it was so successful. I mean, it was three it's million a, It's copies. amazing to me when you look back at like Marx and Engels and anybody who has read them and their work on the family. In fact, Engels produced the fundamental work on the family, but his mm -hmm. ideas were also Marx ideas, even though he, I yeah. think he wrote that book after Marx was already dead. He did. Mm -hmm. But, um, but yet, it's this incredible move that they make, not only with uh, sort of restructuring or retelling the narrative about power within the family, um, but then driving women out of the home yeah. into work. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, we see when when the Bolshevik Revolution takes over, you know, basically free contraception, uh, abortion on demand, uh, very liberal divorce laws, uh, the 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 state taking over the rearing of the children, especially through public education. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, all of this is just right out of the Marxist playbook and yet yeah. seems to follow suit with regards to where the feminist movement eventually goes. Mm -hmm. Right. So. Um, yeah. It's pretty remarkable just how steeped it, it is in that that ideology. Yeah. You know, no, and the then, parallels are overwhelming. Yeah. And so um, then Kate Millett is another, this is another fantastic point. And this was obviously very uh, touched upon in your book, The Anti-Mary Exposed as well. But she writes this book, uh, Sexual Politics. She's known as the female Marx, the high priestess later on of feminism. Um, but this brings in a whole nother interesting cast of characters that many people aren't aware of. One of yeah. the things that I'm, I was struck by in reading your book, uh, The End of Woman, but also the putting it together with some of the things I've read from Paul Kangor and the like, mm -hmm. was that how much of a hotbed New York was for all of this stuff. I mean, if you read about Bella Dodd, it, like communism was was the, the biggest place where communism was in our country, was yeah. probably New York. Um, yeah. That you have the, the all this stuff with the feminist movement with Seneca Falls in New York. And, um, and then you have- Even Witness, Whitaker Chambers was from New York also, yeah. Yeah, no, so amazing. I mean, incredible. So then you've got this little like cast of characters 
out of the Frankfurt School in Germany who are really doing this marriage between Freud and Marx. And this is where critical theory is born yeah. that, that we're still dealing with in many ways, you know, today and has been, you know, have been drilled into university students for decades, right? Um, yeah. So you've got Herbert Marcuse, you've got Wilhelm Reich, you've got Eric Fromm. And then what winds up happening is, is during the time of Hitler, Frankfurt, the Frankfurt School transplants to where? To Columbia University yeah. <laughs> and yeah. sets up a school in, at Columbia and then also is involved with the school that, that educates teachers, teachers college. Columbia University is still like, the teachers college is still like the, the prime educator of teachers today. Yeah. And yet yeah. its history is in the Frankfurt School critical theory and communism. So I don't know, speak about this and its, its yeah. connection with Millet because it's fascinating. Yeah, no, it's incredible. And I think this is one of the pieces that's, that is really an, an added layer to the Marxism is just that, that like you said, this interjection of, of Freud's ideas and this effort to really sexualize people in, in, in ways that had never done been done before um, sexualizing children sexualizing even babies um, just that idea of, of the kind of control that comes when you bring this kind of disorder I mean this is obviously not their their language but that's the the result it's is this the shift of power and control and um, yeah it's just incredible what they do I mean even most people don't realize that there is you know Wilhelm Reich wrote the book called the sexual revolution it was published in 1936 far before the 1960s happened. So the blueprint was already created. I mean, it was the exact same name too. It wasn't like it was some other name that he used. It was it was very much a blueprint for the, the 60s. And um, so it's it's amazing to see how the, the cultural side comes from, you know, not just politics anymore, not just this battle between the classes, but suddenly it's all bottled up in this idea of, of sexuality and culture. And this is exactly, you know, what Kate Millett, she studied under Wilhelm Reich. She was, you know, his protege. She did her degree at Columbia, at one of her degrees there. And um, so she very much was... Uh, uh, kind of became this mouthpiece of um, critical theory and trying to integrate these concepts in a way um, that just had a broad appeal and could also sort of infest widely, um, the, certainly the ac academia culture. She was on the front cover of Time magazine. Uh, it, so it's, it's incredible to, to look at her work and the, the breadth of her influence, but also to know that, again, it came back. It all started with the, the Frankfurt School and, and Marcuse's concept or idea that we had to get into the, the culture and infect the, the culture to get our ideas to, to, you know, be appreciated on a massive scale. Now, in some sense, in some sense with Friedan, but also certainly with Millet, you see now the fem feminism, the feminist movement, like almost try to make a break with the home, with the family, oh, with, yeah. you know, yeah. so, um, and that, that obviously comes then. And that's what we, in a sense we've inherited and we're very familiar with today, but that was really tied to, to them in that time, correct? Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, this was the goal was, you know, Engels had wrote this, that the women would not be free until they were doing productive work outside the home. So that was for Dan's goal. I mean, she, this, we, we have it in notebooks that she wrote that, that quote specifically. And of course, this is sort of the theme of, of the feminine mystique. Um, Millet goes just so much further in terms of just the radicalness of it and, and the anger of it. I mean, Ferdinand was through a lot of, of temper tantrums and was quite vicious and really 
you know, just found ways to get her way. Um, I, I just, I spoke to Dennis Prager a few weeks ago and he told me that he actually debated her um, when he was 28 years old. And hmm. he said that at some point she got really angry with him, got up and, and called him a male chauvinist piglet and left. And he said, he just kept talking. And he said she actually came back. And, you know, I thought, this is genius. This is exactly how, you know, Fredan needed to be treated because most everybody else would be like, you know, pull the mics, the debate's over, you know, whatever. But this was a way around it, you know, where she actually came back. So, uh, you know, I, I thought it was genius. So that's happening. But then Millet, on the other hand, you know, she's in and out of psychological institutions. And she's, her, and I've spent a lot of time talking with her sister, um, Mallory Millet. She's Mallory's um, outlived Kate and has started telling a lot of the stories about Kate after she passed away um, several years ago. And Mallory's, you know, tells the stories about just just her mental illness, but more importantly, her real desire, like Percy Shelley, um, to destroy every kind of social taboo. Um, this, you know, this was very, very popular in the Romantic movement. You've got, you know, Marquis de Sade is also engaged in that. Well, de Sade was one of uh, Kate Millett's heroes. I mean, she just wanted to destroy whatever she could. Um, she was involved in so many things. I think a lot of things that we don't even realize that she was involved in. Um, that'll be a, another book for the future, I suppose. But um, in any event, yeah, she just was all about destroying taboos. She's very much a promoter of lesbianism and bisexual, you know, any kind of sexuality, really. There was there were seemingly no limits in her life. And um, it's it just in, incredible how influential she was, you know, and relatively unknown, I think now. Most people don't really know who who Kate Millett was, but just the, the kind of influence that she had in promoting the sexual revolution and destroying the culture is just, I think, almost incalculable. Now, another interesting point you bring up is how with her, you almost see lesbianism as like the feminine ideal. Yeah. So yeah. how does that work? And, and can you explain right. that, what she thought so about that? It, it certainly wasn't limited to her, but this was, you know, what what's happening is there the this group of women is trying to get rid of the home. They're trying to get rid of the family. So you've got to sort of somehow replace that with something. And of course, this idea of the sisterhood is what really um, was supposed to replace it and supposed to be, you know, be kind of the new family. And um, so that's what was going on. But there was this great movement towards trying to make lesbianism therefore kind of the the pinnacle of of human nature um this you know they they talked about this very openly there's a book called the sisterhood is powerful that was edited by a woman named robin morgan and there's a whole, there's you know lesbians referred to in it frequently but there's a you know the whole point of it is and one of the articles in particular makes this very clear is lesbianism no longer has any kind of um, connection or dependency upon men. Um, it ha it allows women to have relationships with one another, you know, sexually gratifying or whatever, however they're couching it. Um, but there's no serving men and there's no children involved in it either because, of course, it's naturally sterile. So those are to them very much the, the kinds of things that they're pushing for. Um, and that's why it just became sort of the, the pinnacle of the movement was the the um, the focus on lesbianism you know there's this great quote that you have from um from uh shulamith Fire firestone mm -hmm. on page 83 of your book and uh and i wanted to just read it and i wanted you to make a comment on it because to me it's like oh, it's, it's making this connection firestone also a disciple of the professors of the frankfurt school um and and well known in in the feminist movement 
says this, just as the end goal of socialist revolution was not only the elimination of the economic class privilege, but of the economic, economic class distinction itself, so the end goal of the feminist revolution must be, unlike that of the first feminist movement, not just the elimination of male privilege, but of the sex distinction itself. Genital differences between human beings would no longer matter culturally. And that's striking because that idea, of course, is touched on by Simone de Beauvoir. Mm -hmm. And and even like more contemporary uh, philosophers like Judith Butler, who sees gender as as simply performative and not something intrinsic. So can you can you speak to that as well? Yeah. Um, I don't think I put it in the book, but actually Percy Shelley anticipated this first. He said he predicted that there would become this end to gender altogether, um, you know, back in the 1880s or I'm sorry, 18, 1810s. He's writing this. Um, so it's another one of those ideas that just keeps cycling back through through the movement. But um, yeah, so the the existential philosophy movement comes along with um, Jean-Paul Sartre and and uh, Simone de Beauvoir. And Simone is very much of this idea that, you, you know, you can be whomever you want. And, you, you know, it's the whole idea is sort of um, to express who you are and reinvent yourself and whatnot. She's got that line about, um, you know, woman is... Um, uh, not born a woman, she must become one. And so that those kinds of ideas really open the, the, the door to getting rid of gender altogether, making it very fluid. Um, you have a lot of scientific research that none of which was very was solid, but people still glommed onto it and were really attracted to this idea of getting rid of gender altogether. And, you know, this just keeps moving forward. So Judith Butler finally is like, it's totally social construct. It doesn't really exist. And, you know, we're now to the point where it's it's trans, but this all started with feminism and with this idea of getting rid of gender altogether. And um, you know, in the 1970s, that was very much talked about getting getting rid of gender, and um, you know, just sort of moving forward with this this kind of fluidity. And of course, the technology has advanced advanced in such a way that we can sort of mask um, the things. You know, obviously, it can't be done on a cellular level, but there are ways in which that you can mask the body that we're seeing with the trans movement now. Um, so it's it's amazing how the longevity that this idea this idea has had. Um, you know, and this is the other thing that the the feminist movement has been so masterful at doing is not just defining its own position, but defining the position against it. So there's this idea called essentialism, which is super taboo in any kind of the, the feminist or women's studies programs, which it's basically just means that the your body informs who you are to a certain level, that the body and soul are connected and the body will tell you something about who you are as a as a person, you know, male or female, and that idea it just you know it's almost laugh laughed out of any kind of academic world anymore because of the likes of of Butler and her ideas and and others like her. Um, but they, you know, in addition, they've also been able to very much caricature those who disagree with feminism as well. And this is, I think, one of the biggest challenges that certainly we have as, as Catholics is to try and help people sort of put some flesh on what it really means to be a woman who doesn't fall into the feminist camp, um, but also doesn't fall into the, you know, the doormatty world that they've made us look like we are, um, or, you know, stupid or, you know, the handmaid's tale kind of visual that they 
you know, they waltz that woman out, those women out in their red robes and bonnets anytime there's something related to abortion. Um, and that's how they, they, they make us look. I mean, we're sort of, we must belong to a fertility cult or something. Um, so anyway, it's it's really interesting to see how the the gender has absolutely been you know created so much confusion um, because of these very seminal ideas in the feminist movement, and that's what's been sort of the gateway drug, if you will, to the the trans movement. So the trans movement is ultimately the the end goal of what feminism set out to do with the second wave. Yeah, you know, and and on some level too, I mean, this is you could say gnostic. In, in its foundation. Mm -hmm. um, uh, my own work as, uh, as a doctoral student was focused on John Paul II's phrase, how the human family was facing the challenge of a new Manichaeism. And I really delved into what he meant by that. And he associates this new Manichaeism with basically the philosophical errors flowing from Descartes and modern rationalism, mm -hmm. uh, the, a fundamental one of which is the idea of of mind body dualism where yeah. your your identity is associated with your mind what you think as opposed to your body um, and yet we see that today and many people don't even realize this that and even to say something like i'm a man trapped in a woman's body or i'm a woman trapped in a man's body requires right. a an anthropological stance that says that you are not really your body mm, and yeah. that you are what you feel or think i think uh, i i know you mentioned this in your acknowledgments i think i think a, a very important book for people to get is the rise and triumph of the modern self by carl truman because he he part? really does play this out the the mm -hmm. emerging psychological self right and uh yeah. and this idea of expressive individualism where if you're stopping somebody from expressing who they believe or feel that they are on the inside because that's who they really are whatever they feel they are then somehow you're you're discriminated against them that you're you're, you're treating you're you're being a bigot. You're um, and and this is what's at play in culture today. So um, that's yeah. a really important book. But it, it it ties into this idea of really uh, accepting an anthropological stance as a given that you really must prove that we are who we are on the inside, really only, and that our body is really has at best an instrumental value. I mean, would you see that as uh, as very much connected to this idea? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I think that the, the separation of the two is essential for them to be able to make the arguments that they do and for to, to get to this point that we've we've gotten to. Um, and that, again, all started with uh, back to Marcuse and the, the, the existentialism and, and whatnot. So, you know, as much as philosophy, people don't really understand philosophy. And part of that is philosophy's own fault. You know, if you <laughs> the extreme rationalism of Bertrand Russell, um, you know, hasn't helped anyone. Um, but I think that also just the, the foolishness of, you know, the ideas of Sartre and, and others, um, you know, has just led to this kind of, of chaos so that absolutely people don't really realize uh, how loaded those kinds of phrases are and how philosophically loaded the um, just the whole trans movement is and what, you know, all the baggage that it's evolved from. It's it that it's come out of. And of course, the unfortunate thing is that all the people, young people that are caught up in it, uh, they're completely ignorant of any of the philosophy or any of the background. They're just swept up in the movement and in the thinking and and very vulnerable to it. Mm -hmm. And so well, and that's I think the tragedy. You could say that about 
all of us. I mean, I think that's what's happened. I, you know, I, you know, one of the, the interesting things that's happened with my books is I think that it's allowed men in, in many respects to kind of let go of some of the resentment they feel towards bad women um, and f- kind of see us have a, a, f- a sense of compassion because they realize all of us have been brainwashed by this. This isn't just, you know, this wasn't some sort of uh, idea that just took hold in academics or whatnot, but it's it's everywhere. It's completely saturated our entire culture. And you know, this is one of the reasons why yeah. this book is so groundbreaking because I'm actually you know pointing out that this is, there's, there's real um, mind control that that's been an indoctrination that's been happening, and most of most women have no idea um, that this is in fact going on. So, absolutely, the, the culture point. is ignorant of it, and um, and certainly the the children. I mean, this is one of the reasons why the children are being allowed to do it by their parents because their parents have been bought into this indoctrination, and their grandparents have been have brought it bought into the indoctrination. Um, so there's all these generations deep uh, that is is you know, affecting the the outcomes of this significantly. Well, um, we want to give people a reason to buy the book. <laughs> so I think, you know, maybe we should uh, just move on a little bit. I, I do have a, a, a final question and then actually I, I have a, a postlude maybe. But, um, but so what's the solution? I mean, like, where's yeah. the hope? You know, because yeah. I think that, that you can get overwhelmed by this and, and especially in a culture where if you even discuss these ideas you're afraid of being called a bigot uh, mm-hmm. of being canceled of you know yeah. whatever the case may be and every mm-hmm. everybody wants nobody wants to be a bigot you know <laughs> like and nobody wants to to be mean to anyone or or to make anyone feel unsafe like nobody wants that so it's it's the great silencer right um yeah. so 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 where's the hope and where do we go you yeah. know from here well, I think there's a lot of different ways to to look at it. One of them, of course, is just to to see, you know, in a lot of respects, this book is speaking to women who have felt like they haven't had anyone speaking for them. And, um, you know, I meet women all the time who either don't believe in feminism, they don't like feminism, they don't want anything to do with feminism, or they were feminists and they they figured finally figured out like this was not the road to wit the, the future that they were dreaming of um and sadly a lot of these women are women that are older that you know have gotten to the point where they they don't have a family they don't have children they have no husband you know um they're they're asking the question you know what happened um i did everything they told me to do so i think that that is happening and actually you can see kind of you know why was the barbie movie just brought out it's partially to sort of indoctrinate a whole new generation of women who are starting to ask questions like why do I hate the patriarchy? Why do I hate men? You know, all of this. And so um, it, it's interesting to see what the, how the culture is is addressing this, um, especially with so many aging feminists in the in the world today. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of hope in people that are just focused on trying to raise a good family and trying to to be a strong family and having um, children. I, you know, I'm so encouraged by th- by that dynamic. I'm also encouraged by women, the groups like um, Moms for America or Moms for Liberty. I'd love to see a Catholic one. Um, I think there's nobody more radicalized than than Catholic women and and willing to really step up for um, for our families and certainly our husbands and sons and and daughters. Um, but these are kind of the groups that are like Phyllis Schlafly. I mean, Phyllis Schlafly was a, a Catholic woman that that stopped in its tracks the ERA. It's a, it's an amazing story, and of course nobody nobody had that on their bingo card. Like, okay, enter Phyllis Schlafly. You know, I mean, this is right. just a housewife. She had a law degree, but she, you know, used all the resources at her fingertips to to 
fight this. And I think that that's... And yet they have to put her down with that series with Kate Blanchett. Yeah, Yeah, I know. Yeah, (laughs) so sad. Um, But in any event, so I think that that women have a, a, a really strong capacity to um, to influence the culture. And, I, you know, the other thing that I've seen significantly is, you know, where have we been on culture? Even if you think about, like, Catholic movies back in the 50s, you know, the Song of Bernadette winning Academy Awards. Like, imagine mm. anything like that winning an Academy Award these days. Right. Um, but we've really abandoned the culture, and and so much of that was in the 70s and, and, and 80s. Um, and this is one of the reasons why I've started my blog, Theology of Home. Um, we've written uh, the books, Theology of Home, with my co-author Noel Maring, and then now we have an, a another new one, one out, right? A new yeah, one? Oh, um, we didn't write it; we just did the forward for it. Our, <laughs> our friend Emily Malloy did it on uh, flowers and the liturgical calendar, and it's just stunning. Um, she's photographed most of it at this home in in Mississippi that she was living in at the time, and it was built in the 1830s, and it's just gorgeous. But um, in any event, I I think we have to start getting back into the culture because what's happened is, like I was saying earlier, the the left has defined both who who they are, but also who they think we are, and we have actually a much better message. It's much more compelling. It's it's hopeful. It's life giving. It's joyful, and that that's just not making its way anyway. Any in any way into the culture. We don't have, we haven't given women sort of an off-ramp. And so this is why I think theology of, the theology of home books have been so successful is the fact that people, women are starving to see women look healthy and normal and, you know, and loving God and their families and, you know, husbands to not look like they're idiots and, you know, all right. this. So anyway, I think we we need to get back into the culture and start providing a, a, a different worldview, um, a counter view to what the, the culture has been doing. Um, so that's a real challenge, too. But I think it's it's hopeful, especially when we know the success that Theology of Home has been and the way in which, you know, it's now at every bridal shower, wedding, you know, those kinds of things on registry. So that's been really heartening that people are hungry for that and to just try and provide more of that kind of content. Um, I love that, by the way, that should be your tagline, an off-ramp, an off-ramp for women disillusioned (laughs) with the feminist movement. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's a little wordy, but uh, yeah. Um, But that's the idea. I mean, it looks like I just was having a conversation with someone the other day and they were like, it looks like there's two carries, you know, the one who does the the hard edge, the end of woman, and then the other one who's you know doing all this lifestyle brand <laughs> home products, and you know I'm like they're 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 totally related. I mean this right. is the thing is they're absolutely related. It's one is you know I I can be, be critical of the culture as much as I want, but unless I'm actually trying to build something and push something out there that's can bring healing and you know beautiful message to women, then I I feel a little bit like a hypocrite because it's very easy to criticize. It's very hard to build, but I think we're all called to build at this stage in the culture. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, a, a last question, really, the last question. Um, you know, there, there are some wonderful authors, Leela Lawler, I think of, who have basically said that, like, there can't be Catholic feminism, that that when you look at what feminism is, where it comes from, it's, it's a, a, there's a dichotomy between that and Catholicism. Well, what would you say about that? Um, yeah. You know, do you think there is a Catholic feminism? Yeah, I think this is a uh, is a difficult question, but it gets easier when you start really seeing the foundations of the feminist movement. Um, the three you know three legs of the stool are the occult, uh, smashing the patriarchy, and um, oh, what's the third one? Free um, love. Free love. Free thank love. you. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you. Um, 
and none of those things are compatible in any way, shape, or form with the church. I mean, the church is a patriarchy, right. so you can't have that one. A cult is obvious, and you know, free love is clearly not part of the the vision that our Lord has given us and the church has given us. So that's a problem. You also have the issue of you know just this overriding question: How do we help women? become more like men, which is also anthropologically totally distorted and really an abuse of our fertility. And we're, this is what we've seen in the world with both birth control and uh, the abortion issue. Um, you also, I, I think this is not known and understood right now in the culture, but I think, you know, give it a hundred years and people will look back and see feminism as probably the, the most deadly ideology in all of human history. Um, our abortion numbers in the United States, we've killed 60 million babies, but worldwide, even the Guttmacher Institute, I think last year's numbers in abortion worldwide was something like 72 or 3 bil- uh, million. But the number of people that died in the world last year was around like 64 million. So there's ten, uh, roughly 10 million more abortions that happen in the world than people dying of everything else combined. Um and these numbers are are staggering because what how did that happen you know a mother killing her own child uh, you know just think about that these aren't soldiers these are this isn't war this is a mother killing her own child through that you know incredibly tender bond of mother and child um how do they break through that well they get us out of the home they tell us we have to work they tell us our husbands are our enemy they tell us our children are our enemy um we we have to be this you know independent woman and that's where our ha- happiness is going to be co- coming from um so i think when you know you start looking at it in those terms why on earth would you want to call yourself a feminist when you mm. when you see how deadly it has has actually been it's sort of like saying well we're going to call ourselves catholic nazis or catholic mafia or catholic <laughs> Um, communists, you know, I mean, it just doesn't even make any sense when you see right. how incompatible they are. So I think that that's a, an important piece. Now, of course, you're going to have people that are going to want to still call themselves Catholic feminists. And, you know, I'm not going to argue with them. But I what I would say is define your terms, like make sure absolutely that you are very explicit about what you mean by feminism, because if it's any of these core values of the feminist movement then you're in big trouble as 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 a catholic and that that's i think one of the most challenging pieces when i look around at the landscape in the church right now is that a lot of people use the term they have no idea what they mean by it they they couldn't define it if they wanted to and i i think that they they need to be called to account for that and say this is exactly what we mean and it doesn't have anything to do with this and if they can do that then obviously i won't quibble with it but in the meantime it's creating and sowing all kinds of confusion among women because they don't know how to operate within the church and they don't know how to operate as women they don't understand the family you know all of, you can see just this incredible confusion that's that's going on um in the in the church today because of this conflating of these ideas right this is fantastic. Dr. Gress, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for your incredible work. It's really very, very important. And uh, and it is shining a light and it is building something for sure. So thank you for all that you're doing and God bless you and your family and your work. And uh, hopefully we'll be with you again in the not too distant future with your uh, 11th, 12th and 13th oh, book. Goodness. <laughs> thanks so much for having me. All right. God bless. Bye-bye. You too. So glad that you joined us for this episode. So great. It was so much fun and so informative. And I want to remind you to please share this podcast with as many people as possible. That's how people find out about us. Also, stay connected with us by following us on your favorite social media platform at R4H Podcast. That's the letter R, the number four, and the letter H, Podcast. 
and subscribe to us as well on YouTube, where you can see us on video and see what we look like. So thanks so much for joining us today. There's always a reason for hope. This is Mario Costabile. Until next time, peace.